two hours every weekday, covering everything from Torah, Parsha, holidays, and so much more. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. And welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievan, and it's great to be back with you here after a few weeks of festivities of joy of celebration. And now we're back on track. And for this exciting new season, I want to share with you something fascinating that we're going to be covering over the next six weeks. And I invite you to join me on Wednesday mornings or Thursday evenings to join for the interactive class, the Jewish Learning Institute, presenting our new course called Great Debates in Jewish History. You don't want to miss this course because this will be a fascinating course. Now, obviously, here on the High FM Soul to Soul show, Thursdays 1 to 2, we're going to cover some of the concepts that we discuss in our JLI series. But for the real deal, you want to be part of it. And you want the chance to debate yourself. The truth is, debate is not only encouraged in Judaism, but it's something that's part of our history. It's part of our theology. You know, the Talmud tells us that God found no better vessel to hold blessings for us, for the Jewish people, than peace. And we know that from a Torah perspective, we are not meant to be factionalizing and destructive and faribles. It's all no good. It's taboo. You think about much of Jewish history, though. Jews believed and felt that division, discord, was literally perilous to our collective survival. But at the same time, debate is something that always existed in the Jewish community. The existence of discordant groups, of disputes, it is as old as we are as a Jewish nation. And you think even in the times of Moshe, we find that Korach and his clan, they challenged the most famous leader of their time. In Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, the mission of there tells us that there's different types of division, of discord, of schism. And depending what it is that motivates a dispute, a debate, is what will tell us if it is a worthwhile debate. So, for example, the debate like the one of Korach, is one that we know is a self-centered, a selfish kind of interest. And that's the one we're meant to avoid. However, open any book of Mishnah, of Talmud, and we know that it's fraught with the debates, whether it was Hillel and Shammai, or Abaya and Rava, or Ravina and Ravashi, all of our great sages, they were motivated by better intentions. L'shem Shemaim, something that's commendable. And so, when it comes to these types of honorable disputes, the Talmud says there are many different perspectives to understanding Torah, to interpreting, and to realizing the Torah. This Shivim Panim Torah, 70 different dimensions. And we're told, Elu Elu these and these, they are different ways of seeing and understanding. And hopefully if we could foster more of that in our communities, we could discover so much more and understand that there's different perspectives, different ways of seeing things. And please, God, over the coming weeks, in our fascinating new series, Great Debates of Jewish History, we're going to survey six pivotal debates that engulfed our people at different periods of our long history.
And each of the debates took place in different periods, different eras. But it's worthwhile seeing how wide-ranging the implications of those debates, the the impact it has for Jews living not just in that particular region and time, but they're to to this very day the impact that those debates and disputes had it. And if we examine the background, the motives, the key events, the legacies of those great debates, and you seek the underlying ideologies that led to the differences of opinion, to the clash. And we're going to explore why these debates occurred when they did. We're going to study how the two sides interacted with each other, how they lived through that tension. And hopefully we're going to discuss the consequences of those debates, what impact it has on us today, and learn by what means these disputes were resolved. Because if you study Mishnah and Talmud, you see there are so many different opinions and perspectives. But one has to be the final verdict that we follow. So we're going to focus each week on a different particular element and aspect of each of these fascinating debates and see what exactly, how they came to be and how the conclusions came to be. So we're going to go way beyond the history of the past. The importance is to see how these teachings of the Torah are so timeless and relevant to us today. So let me just take you through very briefly what the six different topics are, so you'll know which weeks to tune in, which weeks to join, which topics might be of interest particularly to you. Next week, next week, we're going to discuss the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're talking about a sect of Jews who lived, well, let me go even a little bit closer to our period and then go back. You see, this year... I'm talking now, is 70 years, the 70th anniversary since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls are considered to be one of the most important archaeological finds of the past century. Many of those scrolls, if you examine them, and this is like going to a museum, you know, when do you have a chance to go and see the Dead Sea Scrolls? So we're going to have visual artifacts for you to see and get a taste of what these scrolls were. And in fact, if there's some time soon, I'd love to take you a little bit into understanding how these Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. But when you read them, what you notice is that it was not from what we call today mainstream Judaism. We're talking about the period of the Second Temple era, During that time, there were various debates, different aspects of Jewish ritual and philosophy that were being disputed by different factions within the Jewish community. And the Dead Sea Scrolls belonged to a certain sect of Jews. And what we're going to explore next week is who were these sectarians? What were their beliefs? We're going to learn the underpinnings of this dispute between them and rabbinic interpretations of Judaism by examining certain key passages in these Dead Sea Scrolls and by searching for the contrasts 
and the analogies, the similarities between their texts and classical rabbinic literature. And I think it's a fascinating exploration because it really shows us, in fact, when the dust settles, when we conclude the discussions, and when you see the texts inside, you're going to see how the Mishnah was not something new that was developed after the destruction of the temple because you already see the writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls which are proven to predate the Mishnah. So these halachas that are taught in the Mishnah are linked to the way Jews lived long before the destruction of the temple. Even though the Mishnah is only written some 130 years after the destruction of the temple. So it gives you an opportunity to really discuss a number of important teachings um, about the system of the oral Torah, the Torah Shabbat Peh, and to understand how it was developed and the various debates and disputes on halachic matters, on matters that existed in the times of the temple, and to see the difference between the way the rabbis approach things and the way the various divergent groups that existed in those days did. In fact, some of the popular groups of those days, whether it was the Baitusim or the Sedus, the, the Tzedukim, the Sedus, the, how do you call them in English? Sedusites. We'll go with the Hebrew name, Tzedukim. How they various, how these various groups perceived the way the laws should be interpreted and to understand how that actually, the impact of it and the difference, why there were so many people vying for the position of Kohen Gadol. So I think this is going to be a fascinating discussion and you want to be there for it. That's next week. Lesson two, which we'll discuss in two weeks time. Then we're going to explore the story, the very famous suicide at Masada. And we're basically exploring militant nationalism versus religious institutionalism. You know, the last stand of Masada's defenders, I'm talking about the year 73 of the Common Era. It's three years after the destruction of the temple. That was a strong, you know, to this very day actually, many modern Israelis look up to what happened on top of Masada. But the question is, was this something that we should marvel at, emulate, be proud of? What actually happened was that all the defenders wound up committing suicide. And so we're going to explore what lay behind that revolt. Why were there Jews who revolted against Rome? And why there were those who didn't? Why were there those who, so to say, accepted that the temple would be destroyed and this is the way it is? Why did the people at Masada continue fighting when Jerusalem was already destroyed three years prior. So you're going to really get a picture of the great debate that gave to the, that, that really gave the consequences for the rest of Jewish history of what happened then and how that really impacts the future of Judaism and Jewish survival. You think about the destruction of the temple is not the first calamity. It's not the first incident that Jewish people faced of terror. When God took us out of Egypt, God set out for us a purpose. And 
what we were meant to do. We were given a Torah. And the Torah is what highlights our Jewish path, what we do. And so if we look from a Torah perspective, then it's not just deciding our national autonomy, our independence. And I think that takes us back to even modern day arguments regarding Zionism and similar matters about what Jewish people are meant to be doing. Are we meant to be dispersed around the world? Should we all be in our eternal capital in Israel, in Jerusalem? We should. I'm not arguing that, but it's worthwhile coming to the course and tuning in in two weeks' time when we're going to discuss these matters, why there were differences of opinion, why some of the great sages, one could say even capitulated to the Roman demands, or were they maybe a little more pragmatic? And then, of course, were the defenders, the legions who fought and would not capitulate. And they, of course, are the ones who committed suicide atop of Masada. So I think that will be a very interesting discussion, and stay tuned for that. Our third week, we're going to talk about the Rambam controversy. We're talking about faith versus reason. In the 13th century, Maimonides, he wrote amazing works, major philosophical works. Meyer the God for the Perplexed. But you know what happened with his works? It was publicly burned. By whom? Not by anti-Semites. Not by Jew haters. But by fellow Jews. And it's worthwhile to explore what happened then. Because following Jews doing that, that's when the anti-Semites joined along. And not only burned Maimonides' works, but many other great Jewish works, including the Talmud and Mishnah, were being burnt publicly. And want us to explore how did one of the greatest rabbis of the Middle Ages become such a flashpoint in the Jewish community? What was the ideological nature of that controversy? So much of this story hinges on the tension between faith and reason. And by exploring this, you're going to gain a certain clarity. We're going to examine the different writings of Maimonides and why some people didn't approve of it, why there were many sages who opposed him. And I hope this will give you really an opportunity to understand different levels of meaning present in the various mitzvahs as Maimonides taught it. And I think this would be a real interesting discussion because to this very day, there are many other Disputes. In fact, in the fifth lesson, which I'll explain to you in a moment, we're going to talk about the Hasidim and the Masnagdim. But before I get to that, let me tell you lesson four. In the wake of the expulsion, we're talking here the Spanish Inquisition, where Jews from the Iberian Peninsula were expelled, Spain, Portugal, and the surrounding lands. What happened was many Jews moved to Israel. In 1538, the rabbis of Tzfat announced that they decided to reinstitute the practice of smicha, of rabbinic ordination, which was stopped for quite a long time. It completely fell into disuse centuries earlier. But now that they were proposing to reinstate it, obviously opposition came in. And the rabbis of Jerusalem fought that proposal 
fought the initiative. They said that we are not going to reinstitute rabbinic ordination. So you think about the smicha that rabbis have today. Spent time, considerable amount of time, studying to become a rabbi. But that is not the smicha of centuries ago. And what we're going to explore is why did the rabbis of Tzfat want to reinstitute rabbinic ordination? And why did the Jerusalem rabbis oppose it? So by dissecting the halachic polemics, we're going to learn how this debate was a product of the unique historical circumstances of those times. We're talking about 16th century Jewry, who were still reeling from the Spanish Inquisition, from the expulsion. And we're going to see how this story is so relevant to modern attempts today, because anyone following Jewish news knows there have been rabbis in recent times, presently, now, who want to reinstitute, want to reinstitute the Sanhedrin. So, when you get into this, you're going to see a real fresh perspective in understanding the attitude that we aspire to have and the things we need to do in order to make the world a better place, but at the same time, to stick with a certain system, a halachic judicial system that we have with our Beth Din, and no doubt here in South Africa, quite uniquely so, with only one Beth Din, not multiple. But we're going to explore this in much greater detail and understanding why there was opposition to reinstituting the rabbinic ordination in the 16th century, as well as the Sanhedrin. And I think that will really shed light on how our system operates today. I promised you we'll get to the Hasidim versus Musnagdim. And I think it is a worthwhile discussion because people oftentimes take a side. I'm a Hasid, I'm a Musnagid. And in a sense, those differences aren't really real today. But the concept still exists. Now, the Hasidic movement is not that old. It started in the, seventh, in the 18th century. The Baal Shem Tov is the founder of the movement. Now, the Baal Shem Tov initiated, he started the Hasidic movement to breathe new life into the hearts of the Jewish masses in Eastern Europe after the terrible pogroms that wiped out, that exterminated hundreds of thousands of Jews in the 17th century. The thing is, Hasidism wasn't just a new approach to life. There were beautiful teachings and Hasidus really to this very day has impacted so many lives. But we know that it didn't come easy. There was bitter controversy about Hasidus. In fact, some of the great, great luminaries of that time opposed the Hasidic movement, were proudly misnagdim. And I think it's important for people to understand why was there opposition to the Hasidic movement in that time? What were the worries coming from a time when there was a Shabtai Tzvi who self-proclaimed himself as a Mashiach and then we saw what happened with him? So there was valid reason for suspicion, for worry, for concern. And if you participate in that lesson, we're going to examine the writings of the teachings of the great teach of the Baal Shem Tov, of Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi. We're going to explore how they understood the causes and nature of that controversy. Why was that opposition there from some of the great rabbis? And how that opposition, in fact, maybe helped the Hasidim in some ways. 
And how did the Hasidic masters guide their disciples, their students, through that conflict until finally there was peace and reconciliation? And I think today we have a much better situation than it was then. It's going to be a fascinating lesson for you to be part of because if you ever wondered what the difference was between Hasidic approach and the non-Hasidic approach, what did, what was the Hasidic revolution? If you heard about this controversy, it's worthwhile gaining a deeper appreciation and understanding what issues lay at the heart of those debates and what historic tensions set the stage for that upheaval that divided families and communities just over 200 years ago. And then we get to our final lesson. And the final lesson is separation of church and state. And that is, again, another great discussion, whether it's here in South Africa or in Israel or in the United States or in Europe or many other parts of the world, because separation of church and state has its benefits, but there are detractors there too. And I think it's worthwhile discussing, should Judaism, is religion designed to be a personal thing? Is it a private affair? Should it be worn on your sleeve? Should it be a public display? What is the Jewish perspective? And what presents a greater challenge to Judaism today? Is it the supremacy of a conflicting religion? Or the predominance of irreligiosity. That means, are we better off with all religions being public and everyone proud of their identity? Or maybe everyone should just be religious at home and hide it in public. That will be our final lesson over the next six weeks of great debates in Jewish history. This is Soul to Soul on 101.9 High FM. My friends, it was great being with you here today and talking about this fascinating new course that we're going to be offering, The Great Debates in Jewish History. And I hope you'll seize the opportunity to join us for this because it really will be worthwhile. And for today, I just want to conclude with sharing with you a fascinating thought that I gained in exploring this week's Torah portion. And... The thought, the point is about praise. And the reason I talk about that is because the portion starts off where God praises Noah, says, these are the generations of Noah. He was righteous. He was perfect. He always walked with God. And, you know, many people appear to be at tzaddik. They might, you know, they're really in public. In the public, they really behave appropriately. But you don't know how they are in private. Noah, the Torah tells us, Noah not only in public was he a tzaddik, but even that Noach, even in the privacy with God Almighty, he was one who lived his inside was like his outside. But there's a very powerful thought we could think of because I don't know of any other biblical figure who is as praised as Noach. And when you look at the Parsha, we could think about the how Noah, who's described in all these glowing terms, and Noah, in a sense, though, 
our sages say, wasn't necessarily the ideal tzaddik. Because as some call him a tzaddik in pelts, he didn't manage to save the rest of his society, the rest of the people around. Yet the Torah showers him with all these praises. But the thing is, if we take a fresh look at the story of Noach, then you realize that his greatness lies in the fact he stood up to all those around him. Even if he lived in a corrupt society, he had the courage to behave differently than everyone else who was out there. And Noach's courage, our sages tell us, could really be attributed to the powers that were instilled within him by God calling out those great qualities in him. By the Torah ascribing to him those compliments and those praises. It's not just a description of his qualities, but all the more so, it was an empowerment of those qualities. And so, if you understand that we could do the same with those around us, whether it's our children, whether it's our students, whether whoever it might be in our society, when we give encouraging words, when we offer praise, when we shower people with the compliments, with genuine, sincere, real, true compliments for the good they do, we actually encourage them to become, to live up to, as the Pygmalion effect describes, to be who you just described them to be. When we tell our children how good they are, then they want to be good. My friends, let's do a little more of that because when we bring a compliment and praise to those around us, I'm not talking about fake flattery, real, true, genuine compliments, we actually make those around us happy. And that happiness spreads, has such a ripple effect. It brings so much more joy to our surroundings, to our environment. That is well worth what? Very well worthwhile. So that's the message and lesson I take from the portion of Noah this year. Fresh perspective is share the compliments. Just like God praised Noah with all those compliments in our Parsha. And that was what gave him the potential, the power to be all he could be. You could do the same to all the people around you, including yourself. My friends, wishing you a meaningful, purposeful, and praiseworthy complimentary Shabbos. Keep in touch. Keep well. I look forward to see you right here, same time, same place, same station, next week, Thursday, where we're going to discover the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of the interesting lessons that we could gain from them. Shabbat Shalom. Stay tuned for Fresh Thinking Up next with Rabbi Ari Shishler.